0: Good morning, family. Good to see you. Good to be up here. And uh, yeah, good to be here. Have you ever felt hopeless at Christmas? It was Christmas Eve, and I was about 10 years old. And one of my sisters and I were in charge of my dad's gift that year. Um, But neither of us communicated, both of us made assumptions, and we realized Christmas Eve that we had no gift. Uh, We panicked, started arguing about whose fault it was, and endured a very severe lecture from our other sisters about how thoughtless and inconsiderate we had been. And they were right. Our one job, and we had dropped the ball. So this is what sent us trudging in the evening snow to Superstore with a few more irritated words to each other and a couple of guilty tears. For a 10-year-old, I felt pretty hopeless. We looked around and finally settled on the best gift a couple of teenagers could find and afford, shaving cream and a book. We, we trudged back, wrapped the really lame gift, and watched our dad graciously and thankfully accept this last-minute present. My dad's forgiveness restored a bit of my hope that night, and I definitely learned my lesson and never did that again. But you know, Christmas isn't a hopeful time for everyone, is it? Whether you're 10 and you're in the doghouse or whether you've just lost a loved one or a job, there are lots of reasons we can feel hopeless at Christmas. We thought maybe by now our situation would have changed but here we are another year later with the same problems. I wanna share with you this morning the hope that I have been finding in Jesus this Christmas. Now, when most people think about Christmas, they think naturally about the birth of Jesus. Um, but the hope that I want to share today comes more from Jesus' youth and adolescence. Besides one story from when Jesus was 12 years old, 12 years old, his adolescence is summed up in four verses in the Bible, the entire Bible, and only four verses talk about his youth. So if you have a Bible, can you turn to Luke 2: 39 to 40? And 51 to 51 and I'm just gonna pray while you turn there Lord I thank you so much for the privilege and the blessing that it is to get to read your word in public with with family and Lord I thank you uh, for what you have to say to us I thank you that you have been looking forward to meeting with us all week and and God that you have something to say to each one of us I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be yours and that um, you would give us open ears and hearts to hear you in Jesus name So verse uh, 39 to 40, a little bit of context here, we're picking up right after Jesus has been born and dedicated in the temple to God. And when they, Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So after these two verses, we get a very short story about when Jesus was 12 and in the temple. Uh, his family, he and Mary and Joseph, would travel to Jerusalem every year for Passover. And so this particular time they traveled, Jesus decided to purposely stay in the temple to learn from the rabbis. But his parents didn't realize it. They leave without him. They panic. They realize he's missing. They come back and finally find him after three days. And Jesus answers saying, hey, look, I, I wanted to be in my father's house. So he established who his father in heaven was. So then we come to verse 51 and 52. And he, Jesus, this is right after this scene, went down with them, Mary and Joseph, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The hope of Christmas that I want to share with you today is that Jesus knows you. He knows what you're going through, and he has a good purpose for you in it and through it. Jesus was planted here on earth as a seed. And he grew where he was planted. And so my goal today is to shed a light on the hope that we have based on where Jesus was planted and how he grew there. So I'm going to share three places where he was planted. And the first is Jesus was planted on earth as a human. The God of the universe still remained God, but gave up his divine privileges in order to become a little tiny human seed in a mother's womb, and then a crying baby nine months later. Starting out as a baby, Jesus naturally had to learn and grow, as every other human does. So he began by crying, latching, sleeping, and filling whatever version of a diaper they had back then. He learned to grasp little things with his tiny little fingers, and if he was anything like my nephew Jack, he probably learned to say the Hebrew version of "gargar." which is cheese, Nana, Papa, Mama, Dada, and Geyer, which is fire. Jack really likes fire. I personally spend a great deal of time trying to teach and coach my nephew Jack how to say Auntie Bethy. The closest we've come is Bahman. Um So whatever comes out first, Auntie Bethy or Auntie Batman, I'm really fine with, as long as he says something. <laughs> But someone probably like me spent way too long trying to teach Jesus as a little baby how to say their name and probably cheered with utter joy when he finally blurted it out. Jesus learned to crawl. He took his first few tentative steps on and probably his first few falls on Nazareth dust. The Son of God had to learn how to walk and fall on the dust that he had once used to form mankind. As he continued to grow, Jesus would have quickly realized the limitations of a human body, as we all do, don't we? Scraping his knees, finding random bruises that he can't explain, fighting off the common cold, which a few of us have been doing this week. Can you imagine how humbling our human body would have been to the God of the universe. And he was planted in it for 33 years on earth. And if that was a nightmare enough, Jesus had to navigate adolescence. What a treat. He had to learn social skills, and let's be real, that is a challenging one for us. I have had a lot of socially awkward moments, and still do, And I've managed to block a lot of them out, thankfully, but I will never forget one of my first-year university bus rides. I was a rookie with the back doors of the bus and forgot that they closed on a timer system. So carrying a really heavy backpack full of textbooks that really only first-year students do, I was walking towards the back doors and there was a line of people already heading out. So I was like, oh great, I don't have to fumble with the doors, this will be perfect. So I'm heading out behind them. But forgetting that they're on this timer system, they start closing. And unfortunately, as I'm walking out, these doors close on my face. I'm not joking, just like this. So the front part of my face is outside the bus, staring at the group of people my age at the university stop, while the rest of me, heavy backpack and all, is still inside the bus with a crowd of people waiting behind me. The bus alarm is going off because there's an obstruction between the doors, and all I think to do in the panic is say, Oh, dear! I quickly fumble for the strips on the side of the door and I'm released, and I sprint off to my class, avoiding all contact with socially normal people. We all have these, well, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us have awkward moments like these. And you know what I love is that Jesus experienced some of the same cringy moments. Maybe not quite this fabulous, but still. The God of the universe in his awkward teenage body laid under the stars and the skies that he had once created. As Jesus grew, he had to learn about society, the ways and culture of people that he would one day be ministering to. He also would have had to grow emotionally. So Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, isn't mentioned after this point in the temple that we we previously mentioned. He's not mentioned in the Bible again um, in in Jesus' story, which means it's likely that he died early on before Jesus hit 30. And so Jesus, who had never intended on physical death, had to experience tragic loss. He learned what it felt like to grieve and to feel human emotional pain. And all of this growth for Jesus wasn't just a quick download. I don't know, when I was little, I used to think that he grew and increased in wisdom, just meant, boom, God gave him what he needed for wisdom, and he was like this crazy, smart guy as a 12-year-old. But it wasn't, because Luke writes that he increased in wisdom. And those words come from one Greek word meaning To beat forward, advance, and lengthen out by hammering. Jesus' growth was just as slow, just as uncomfortable, and just as painful as it is for the rest of us. He knows exactly what it feels like to be stretched. Exactly what it feels like to learn crazy hard life lessons that we probably wouldn't want to repeat. And this is why I think that phrase, grow where you're planted, is way more accurate than bloom where you're planted. You know all those internet photos, feel good photos that have like a little flower and it's like bloom where you're planted. True, we all want to bloom. But honestly, that's not what it's like sometimes, is it? Because sometimes you don't see a whole lot of blooming, but you're still growing. We have all been planted on earth in these limiting human bodies. We experience pain, loss, discomfort, and sorrow. And it's hard. It's beating forward, and it's being lengthened out by a hammer. But whatever you're facing, Jesus knows exactly what you're feeling. He knows exactly what it's like, Because he went through it. In fact, he chose to go through it for you and for me. A lot of us probably wouldn't want to repeat some of the years we've had to live in life, but Jesus knew the pain that he was going to experience and he still chose it for us. You may feel like you're alone, that no one understands and no one ever will, but you're wrong. Because Jesus understands. Jesus knows exactly what it's like. And more than that, he is with you. Emmanuel, we sing Emmanuel in all these Christmas carols and I think we forget the meaning of it, that God is with us. Jesus chose 33 years of hard life on earth, a death on the cross, and an unreal resurrection in order to be with you. And that, the hope that he knows what we're going through and that he's with us, is what we can carry into Christmas this year. The second place where Jesus was planted was in a family. When God planted Jesus on earth, he was actually very selective about the family that he gave Jesus. He chose Mary and Joseph, who were neither wealthy nor famous, a teenager and a carpenter. Now, God chose them and gave them Jesus before they were actually married. And he did this in order that no one would be able to speculate and question whether Jesus was actually from God, God's son, or from Joseph. He chose a virgin for that reason. But in that, he consequently planted Jesus into a family that would have endured a lot of unwarranted shame, ridicule, and judgment. Once Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph and him went back to live in their hometown, it says. And that means that they were living in the same small town with the same people who knew all the circumstances of Jesus' birth and probably wouldn't have believed that he was born of the Holy Spirit. They would have assumed that Mary and perhaps even Joseph were immoral and their family would have been branded as that family with a bad past. And Jesus would have been branded as an illegitimate child. What a family for the son of God to be born into. He came into the world and immediately faced judgment and a bad reputation. He knows what that's like. What's also been really impacting me lately is the fact that Jesus was perfect and planted in an imperfect family with its own dysfunction. Every family, yes, even Mary and Joseph's, has its own dysfunction. Whether it's in the way we relate to each other or our habits, our culture, anything. When I was little, one of my sisters really wanted a puppy. She wanted a dog. And so for the first couple years of my life, she pretended that I was a dog and <laughs> named me Chelsea. So you, you would be able to hear, Chelsea! Chelsea! We have video footage of this happening. And what's weirder is that I would respond to it, and I loved it, because I was her little pet. Sometimes I would probably, honestly, if my family pulls that voice and name out, I still respond to it. We all have our own quirks. Some are more serious than others. But Jesus lived in a family with imperfect parents and imperfect younger siblings. Can you imagine how challenging and frustrating that would have been to live as a perfect person with very imperfect people? But living with these dysfunctional, imperfect people, Jesus learned practical ways of loving them. He learned their needs and their weaknesses and even their temptations firsthand. He learned how to care for them, how to love them, and how to forgive them. One last thing about Jesus being planted in a family. If Jesus had to learn and grow in all things, that means that he had to learn about God and his purpose on earth. God had to entrust someone on earth with his son's spiritual instruction. And you would think that God would have chosen the like big spiritual giants of the day, right? The best of the best, the Jewish rabbis in Jerusalem. Let's pick those. They're the only ones who can teach Jesus. But no, Jesus went to Jerusalem maybe once a year, and we have that one story of him spending a couple days with the Jewish rabbis, and that's it. It doesn't mention anything else about that. But what Luke does say is that when Jesus, Jesus returned to Galilee with his parents and increased in wisdom, who was teaching Jesus all those 30 years of his life? Mary. Joseph, and the rest of his community. God entrusted Jesus' parents, his family, and his community to teach his own son about himself. In the same way, God has planted you in a family, an immediate family, extended family, work family, friend family, and church family. Maybe you've been planted in a family that comes with a lot of baggage, shame, judgment, just lots of issues. And maybe you're feeling pretty hopeless about your family right now or the situation you're in. Well, every family has its baggage and every family has its dysfunction. And Jesus knows and understands what it's like. God has planted you with imperfect, dysfunctional people who are ultimately leading to your growth if you submit to it. So there is purpose and there is hope in all of the different families you've been placed in in life. Because these are the people who are facilitating your growth and teaching you how to grow in love for God and others, whether they're saved or not. Non-Christians are even helping you grow in your love for Christ and others. God has entrusted them. God has entrusted your family to teach you. And in the same way, you are part of someone else's family. And God has entrusted you to teach your family. Whether it's your work family or your immediate family, or your extended, or whatever family you want to talk about. God has entrusted you to encourage them, to challenge them, and to call them up to a standard in Christ to love him and to love others. And no matter how bleak things look, God is using you and God is using them. When I graduated from high school, Almost every single one of my friends was going to a Bible school and I too wanted to go to a Bible school at some point but I felt like God was telling me to go straight into university hence the bus story in first year. So I went into university but I still had this kind of hope that that someday I would go to Bible school. So My dad once asked me, we used to have this Bible school at church called King's Commission years ago, and uh, my dad said, hey, would you ever consider doing King's Commission if it started up again? And I was like, honestly, Dad, no. If I do a Bible school, I want to get out of Winnipeg and get out of Gateway and just have an adventure on my own and then come back. And he said, okay, well, that's fair, and dropped it. But during my second year of university, I found out that Gateway was planning on starting up Ironwood Internship again, a discipleship and ministry training program. And I can't even explain it. It was like a flip, a switch had flipped in me. And suddenly I started praying about whether I should take this year off from school and and whether I should actually do this. And God spoke to me a lot about it, but one of the biggest deciding factors for me was this thought Why would I go away and try to find a random school with random teachers when God had planted me in a church with incredible wisdom, amazing Bible teaching gifts, and leaders who I actually already trusted? And I thought about the wealth of wisdom and training that I could even get just from my parents, let alone everyone else in the building and in the church. And I honestly couldn't stomach the thought of wasting it. And I can't even begin to tell you how glad I am that I didn't waste it. That year of growth where I had been planted is the reason why I'm up here today. And since then, I've become a teacher at the King School. And sometimes I've actually moaned about the fact that my life has been sucked into the vortex of this one building. I, I really do think we, we spend too many hours here sometimes because it's especially during basketball season. But that's changing for me, the moaning, because just like internship, God has planted me in this place for a reason. My parents, my sisters, John and Valmick, Peter Todd, Ken Peters, Ruth Wall... Susan Zilke, now at the school, Paula Da Silva, my vice principal, and all the other leaders and teachers and friends in my life that God has planted me in the middle of, they are the reason I am who I am today. Yes, with all their dysfunction, they are the reason I have grown to become who I am. And they are the reason why I keep on growing. They have stretched me and definitely lengthened me out with a hammer and driven me forward, advancing in love for God and in love for people. So which families has God planted you in? Are you ignoring and missing the wealth of growth that God has for you in them? Are you ungrateful and complaining or even resentful? Or are you giving thanks, recognizing how they are stretching you and submitting to the opportunities that God's giving you through them for growth? And are you helping them grow, teaching, challenging, and encouraging them? God has planted you for a purpose, and you can put your hope in him this Christmas as you face dysfunction, frustration, pain, disappointment, loss, and imperfection in whatever family. The third and final place that I want to talk about where Jesus was planted was in Nazareth. Now, most musicians, aspiring musicians, will move to Nashville, and most aspiring actors will move to L.A., or if you're in Canada, Vancouver, and Toronto. And you'd think that to make a big impact, Jesus, the savior of the world, would have lived in the most influential city, Jerusalem. But no. Nazareth. Jesus grew up in a conquered land, in its most despised province, in the most disregarded valley. And you know, Winnipeg is a pretty disregarded place, isn't it? Despised by quite a few. And as much as we defend our city to all the other haters out there, I think we can be honest amongst ourselves. (laughs) The winters here are horrible. You walk outside and the air literally hurts your face. The calf area of your pants are perpetually dirty that you don't even bother trying to brush them off from the salt on your cars that you inevitably get every time you step out of the vehicle. The only hills we have are the ones we build in parking lots out of snow plows, or the ones we build out of garbage, because that's a thing here. At least it's environmentally friendlier. We were branded for years as the murder capital of Canada, and lately, or recently, the most racist city in Canada. Thanks, Maclean's. Not us, don't worry. <laughs> so, Dave Serretta pointed that out to me at the end of last service. We're far from the ocean, very far from the mountains, unfortunately, and we have a very aggressive mosquito, cankerworm, and now ladybug population every summer. We alternate with Saskatchewan for being the butt of all Canadian jokes, even our own. Now don't get me wrong, I do genuinely really love this city, but no one can deny that it's pretty despised and in some ways hidden and obscure. But Jesus knew what that was like, because he grew up in the Winnipeg of Israel, just a little warmer. His town was so disregarded, in fact, that people chose not to believe in him during his ministry simply because he was from Nazareth. And they said, Ah, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Winnipeg. This is the place where Jesus was planted. And this is where God chose for him to grow hidden and obscure. And people were wrong, because the best thing came from Nazareth. Galilee, the area around Nazareth, means circuit. And doesn't that just say it all? It couldn't have been something mighty or majestic. At least it could have had a cool name. Winnipeg, you know, muddy water sounds really majestic. But no, like Winnipeg, it had a lame meaning, Circuit. Something that goes around and around, pointlessly, not going anywhere. And in a way, this is how Jesus could have seen the first 30 years of his life. But get this, Nazareth means the guarded one. This circuit of hidden obscurity was actually much more than that. And though it seemed dull and pointless and lame, the place where Jesus grew up was actually very strategic. It was the guarded place. It was God's protection on his life. In such a disregarded place, Jesus was given the space, the freedom, and the time to grow and learn without the pressures and attentions and influences from big-name places and big-name people back then. By planting Jesus in obscurity, God preciously and aggressively guarded his uninterrupted growth, knowing how crucial that would be for Jesus's ministry later on. One night I was moaning to my mom about how I wish I could just kind of skip to different parts of my life. You know, God, do I have to be here forever? Like, can I just move to that part of the plan? And she responded with, yeah, but remember, the struggle is important. And that's stuck with me ever since. Jesus's struggle, his growth, his development, his stretching were important. His 30 years, 30 long years. I'm only 25, and another five years, that would feel like an eternity. 30 long years where Jesus could have thought, seriously, God, I am still in Nazareth? Can we not be done with this place yet? Or, God, no one's even gonna read about this in the Bible. What is the point? He could have thought all of that but he didn't because he knew that each one of those days of each one of those years was critical for the ministry and the plans that God had for him. From those 30 years planted in Nazareth, Jesus knew the people that he was going to be preaching to. He knew the culture. Those 30 years are where all of the parables came from because he knew what would make sense to these people. He knew the weaknesses in society because he lived with them for 30 years. And he knew exactly what would cut straight to the heart of the broken, the hypocrites, the weary, and the apathetic. He also experienced every temptation known to man and chose not to give in. I used to think that in those, you know, those 40 days in the desert where Jesus, right before his ministry, experienced temptation? There's a verse in the Bible that, that says that Jesus experienced every temptation, and he chose not to give in. And I used to think that all those temptations happened in those 40 days, but I don't think they did. I think Jesus experienced temptation just like we did from day one. Those 30 years were years where jesus chose continually not to give in to sin because he was perfect those years are why jesus was able to say do as i do and do as i have done his messages his struggle had depth that's part of why people believed him because they sensed the depth that he had first as son of God, but as he lived his life and struggled. Those 30 years are why Jesus was able to say to us with conviction, be faithful with the little and you will be faithful with much. Because for 30 years, Jesus was faithful with the everyday, ordinary mundane routine of everyday life. And because Jesus was faithful with that little, he was faithful with the much, when at 33, he willingly chose to accept the responsibility of going to the cross for our sin. This message, this growth, this depth is what God jealously guarded for Jesus in Nazareth. The hope that we have at Christmas is that Jesus knows. He knows exactly what you're going through, your weary prayers, your frustrated tears, and your pains of sorrow. He lived those for a purpose, and so are you. As I said before, I've struggled a bit in the last year and a half with feeling like I've been hidden here at Gateway, the King School, and even Winnipeg. Sometimes I've wondered if God has forgotten about me or forgotten about his promises to me. And back in the spring, we had a ministry time after one of the services, and one of the pastors called up anyone who just needed to meet with Jesus. And at the time, I was feeling really low, I was empty, and I honestly felt pretty hopeless. So I went up and as I was waiting on God, I felt like he showed me a picture of the season that I've been in in life. And in this picture, I was surrounded and enclosed by like this big stone wall, kind of like a a castle turret, but without the roof or like an above ground well. And I had these little random toys with me and, and I started surrendering them and giving them up to Jesus. And as I did, he lifted me on his shoulders to see beyond the wall And I saw these beautiful rolling hills, and he spoke to me about it. And then he set me back down on the inside of the walls. And I saw this desk, and I knew that God was speaking to me and saying that this season of my life was for studying and learning. And honestly, I wasn't really excited about the idea. The walls felt small, they felt restricting, and the studying didn't sound too appealing I just wanted to be out beyond the walls where it seemed like there was more adventure. But the longer I was praying and and just waiting on the Lord in this, I saw this pillar around me expanding. And the left side of it was opening up. And and as it was, I realized that this, this was actually turning into a huge garden. And... And I realized that it was getting so expansive that I couldn't even see the walls at the end of this garden. They were there, and I knew they were there, but I couldn't even see them. It was filled with a forest and and with a lake, and it was just stunning. And I realized then that I have pictured this season of life and where I've been planted as restricting, boring, and dull, like a circuit. But in reality... God has actually planted me in a huge garden and aggressively protected this garden for me for an important season of growth and learning, all, I believe, for a greater purpose that I don't know yet. And the season is actually an adventurous, beautiful garden, not a dark, boring prison. So what about you? How's your hope this Christmas? Are you bottoming out? Sometimes I think the reason we lack hope is because we blind ourselves. Because we either refuse to submit to the the walls that God has put in our lives, or we do submit, but then we see the walls as, as limiting rather than liberating. And we choose to see a prison instead of a garden. We refuse to see our sovereign father, the designer and the builder of these actually beautiful walls, as good. And so, what starts happening in this fake prison of ours is we start developing attitudes. So, we get impatient. When will this end? When will I be beyond the walls? Can we finish this? Get it done. Our impatience sends us into doubt about who God is and we eventually start trying to control things and a lot of us here will know that that never works. We get ungrateful and proud, entitled. We think this, this shouldn't be happening. I should have this or I shouldn't have that or I should be there. We start comparing, comparing our growth, Comparing our season, our situations with others. And that sends us into jealousy and and being ungrateful. And then we get offended. We get offended with the imperfect people in our lives and the situations we've been planted in. And that just leads us to getting offended at God. So we spiral into self-pity. The miserable prison party for one. Solitary confinement, if you will. In choosing these attitudes, we actually shut our eyes, refusing to see the garden of growth that God has for us, locking ourselves in a prison that doesn't actually exist. And our hearts become hard and distant from God. So we cower in a corner, ignoring God and stunting our growth. Hopeless we become and remain hopeless. And honestly, Jesus could have seen Nazareth this way. He could have seen his family, even his human body as a prison, but he didn't. He knew he was being planted and guarded in order to grow and walk in the purposes of his father. And so he chose to grow in the garden instead of rot in the prison. He chose hope. So how do we do that? How do we grow in this garden of hope? We start by repenting of attitudes and giving thanks. We can't grow if we're being pulled down by a bunch of weeds. So we get rid of them. We ask the Lord, okay, God, what are the attitudes I've picked up along the way? And then we repent of them. And then we just start giving thanks, rehearsing the faithfulness of God during this season and and recognizing the growth and the garden that we're in. So what attitudes do you need to repent of? And for what do you need to start giving thanks? And then we follow Jesus' example. It says in 51 to 52, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And then Jesus grew and increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor. We grow in the garden of hope by submitting when we were in internship, we were taught one word. It was the first talk of the year and it was all about attitude and we were taught this word and, and the pastor speaking said, you guys need to say this word all year. And the word is whatever. And not whatever in the iral, ugh, whatever type way. Whatever as in the hands open, eyes to God, whatever you want God, whatever it takes. Whatever may come, your will, not mine. That's submission. We start by submitting to our Father and saying, Whatever. We submit to where He's planted us. We surrender our expectations and the things we've been holding on to. And and we trust Him because that's the key. We trust that He's good. Then we submit to God's purposes. So whatever the purposes he has for us in the season, whether it's to grow, to study, to grow in prayer, to grow in love, whatever the purpose is, we submit to God and those. And then we submit to our teachers, the ones he's given us, whether they're our parents, whether they're our leaders, whether they're our mentors or others. We submit to loving the imperfect people around us, and learning and growing from them. We submit to allowing God to use us to teach others. Are you living in submission? Or where in your life is God asking you to surrender? Where are you at? You know, we're entering a new year soon. And for some, the season might change, and maybe that's exciting for you. Maybe it's nerve-wracking. For others, the season may stay the same for a while. We may still be studying at a desk for a while longer. Gateway in the King School, we have been growing for a while now. In this expansion process, God's been planting and replanting us, and boy, are we being lengthened and stretched out by a hammer. Gateway, whether it's corporate or individual, whatever growth we're experiencing can feel super uncomfortable and tiring, hopeless even. And you might feel like you're trapped in this hidden, obscure prison. You might feel alone, misunderstood, and just plain weary. But I believe that God wants to meet with you today. Heading into Christmas and the new year, I believe that he wants to speak to you and fill you with hope, reminding you that you're not alone. That he knows exactly what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. And more than that, he's Emmanuel. God with us. The only way we can repent and submit and grow is by first encountering the person of Jesus Christ. When I came up that day, people could have told me, okay, Beth, you need to repent and then you need to submit. But you know what? I knew the stuff, but I just needed to meet Jesus. I needed a shift in my perspective. I needed hope. And some of you are in that boat today. We submit, we repent, but we need to meet Jesus. And he'll walk us through the rest of it, teaching us and helping us to grow. So are you ready? Let's head into Christmas with this hope that Jesus is with us. He knows what we're going through and he's walking with us the whole way. It's time to grow with him where he's planted us.